Hey, everybody. Welcome to another week of the Live Life Aggressively podcast with Mike Mahler, Sincere Hogan. And hey, man, how you doing? I'm doing good, man. We had a great month last month, January. We came yeah. out of the gates and crushed it. We had more downloads than we've ever had in the history of our show. So you guys have spoken. We know exactly what kind of content you want, and we're going to keep delivering that. Every once in a while, we're going to throw in something we want, like the creator of the, of the real doll, for example. If you don't like it, <laughs> don't fuck off. All right? See, this is what but, we learned from Gary. This is what we learned from Gary Vanderchuk. This is just jab, 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 right cross. Yeah, every <laughs> once in a while, you have to throw something in there that just comes straight out of left field. You don't see yeah, it coming. You know. Otherwise, it's adapt. It gets boring. It's like, oh, here's another <laughs> fitness professional. Oh, here's more great information. So every once in a while, just to keep you on your toes, just throw something out there totally out of left field. Exactly. But like that's finding, not it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like finding long-lost relatives of UFC fighters, like today. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> today we have Brian St. Pierre. That's right, folks. We have a St. Pierre on the show. BSP for short. <laughs> a long lost relative of George St. Pierre. That's the rumor we're going to start spreading about exactly. you. Exactly. You know, hey, I'm not going to deny it. Start here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not going to admit to it, not going to deny it. Exactly, exactly. I'll remain mysterious. <laughs> uh, Brian's a sports nutritionist, so we're going to have fun talking to him about how he dials in nutrition for athletes, supplementation, and so forth. He's worked with quite a few experts in the industry, including Eric Cressy, and he currently works for Dr. John Berardi at Precision Nutrition. And Brian, thanks a lot for coming on the show. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'm pretty excited to be here. So I'm looking forward to uh, you know, seeing what we chat about. Yeah, man, it's a pleasure. Now we just dive in with just how you determine optimal nutrition and supplementation for athletes, because we know that it's going to be personalized and different for each person. So are there, are there some baselines that are kind of universal for each person, and then you personalize from there? How does that whole process work? Absolutely. Um, you know, that's definitely something that we've really geared to at PN these days is having more of like a, a baseline framework for all of our clients, you know, including athletes to start from. Um, and then we personalize from there depending on exactly what we're doing. But the way mm-hmm. we like to do it, um, we actually teach people to use, like, use their hands to, to drive portion sizes. So like you use your palm to determine uh, protein, your fist to determine veggies, a cupped hand to determine carbs, like a thumb to determine fat. So our right. basic standard um, starting point is assuming you eat about four times a day. Uh, Men get about two palms of protein, two fists of veggies, two cup handfuls of carbs, and two thumbs of fat with each meal. And women, it's it's one of each for everything. And this is just a starting point, right? It's just meant to be, let's try this out, you know, see how it works for you, um, because it's scaled to the individual. And the bigger you are, the bigger your hands, the more food you get to eat. The smaller you are, the smaller your hands. <laughs> what, what if you're a big guy with really small heads? Well, yeah. and that, that's, 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 that's the that. case, right? We, we adjust it from there. Well, uh, obviously, that happens. Banana, or a little guy with banana hands, you know? Right. Oh, you <laughs> see it. I've seen all kinds of crazy things. A good buddy of mine who's a rugby player was like six foot, 250, and had little tiny girl, like, little tiny girl hands. He couldn't even, like, couldn't palm a basketball, couldn't do anything. Uh, and he was a huge dude. So, absolutely, you know, you see that stuff. But on the whole, right, in general... What do you guys think about stuff like intermittent fasting that's very popular right now? Because we get a lot of questions about that. What do, what do you think about that in relation to athletic performance? Um, in terms of intermittent fasting, I actually just wrote an article for uh, the IDEA okay. journal about it. And, I mean, it's, the, the, the data is not robust. Like, there's a little bit of, of data. Most of it's right. in animals. Um, some of it's promising, but it's not always clear if it's, the fasting or if it's the fact they're just eating less calories. In human trials, it's shown some benefit. But when you look at the, the picture, like the big picture on the whole, it's gonna, it works for some people. It, doesn't, it does not seem to work well for women. Um, in like, there's like two studies, including women. It's, it's minuscule. Uh, women did not respond as favorably. Why do you think and, that is? What do you think? Um, just your personal opinion. It's hard to really say, just different physiology. You know, women right. have menstrual cycles, which changes the way they process um, proteins and carbs, especially right. carbs right. and fats, actually, like throughout their menstrual cycle. In addition to, you know, just different overall physiology, way less testosterone. I think they respond to fasting differently. Exactly why or how, you know, I couldn't really tell you. And then hmm. anecdotally, we've just seen, um, you know, with all the tens of thousands of clients we've coached, that women who've done intermittent fasting, anecdotally, we've just heard from clients via our coaches that a lot of women do not respond well to it. Yeah, um, I've heard that too. They find, like, you'll see, 
Okay, people under-eat carbs in general, like their thyroid will, will, will decrease. Fasting for women seems to cause some of the similar issues. Uh, even if it's just intermittent, even if their total intake is okay, the extended fasts for some women, for a lot of women it seems, are problematic. Now for men, they seem to be most effective for, for young men who are already fairly fit. Um, right. Like a perfect example was JB's experiment when he did it. He got super lean doing right. it, right? It, it can clearly work, just like other approaches can work. However, it, it seems to work really well for some um, and then can be problematic for others where it actually leads to disordered eating. And it, so it's, I'm not for it. I'm not against it. It's just a tool like anything else in my right. opinion. Right, right. Well, I, I was bringing it up because people always oh, – I'm sorry, Sincere, go ahead. No, I was just saying um, we were just talking about uh, different diets out there and, and disordered eating. There's another trend that's out there right now, and it's um, if it fits your macros. And I'm seeing that's becoming very, very popular and very, very misconstrued by many people. They think like, hey, if my body requires 2,500 calories a day, well, I'm going to have cupcakes and chips, and then, okay, I'll have one healthy meal in there. But, you know, and then they're kind of, they're they're losing fat or they're losing weight because they really just don't know. But in their mind, I think as long as I'm training hard and I'm hitting those 2,500 calories that are required for my body, I I can pretty much eat what I want. They kind of fall into that those Nutrisystem commercials, something like that. Eat what you want and still lose weight. So what are your opinions on this entire, this phenomenon of if it fits your macros? I think you're right. I think it's, the idea isn't to eat like you were just describing, but it's been bastardized by a lot of people in that way. Um, And it can be problematic long term because you'll run into nutrient deficiencies, right? I mean, if if your carbohydrate intake consists of cupcakes and Twinkies and a lot of refined carbohydrates, you know, you're going to be missing out on fiber. You're going to be missing out on phytonutrients, you're missing out, and just, just some of your basic vitamins and minerals, um, and we, like, nutrient deficiencies are more common than people realize. Maybe they're not clinical manifestations where you have uh, pellagra or beriberi, like these things that really occurred in, like, their early 30s and beyond. Um, we don't see that today so much, but subclinical nutrient deficiencies absolutely do exist, and when, you're, when your majority of your intake comes from, you know, refined foods, uh, that's a real risk. And you're certainly not going to be optimizing performance when you're filling up uh, your intake with that kind of stuff. If that makes up, you know, 10% of your intake, or you're an Olympic athlete training 30 hours a week who just needs, you know, 6,500 calories a day, right. that's a little bit of a different scenario, right? Mm-hmm. But for a guy who trains three or four times a week and otherwise has a desk job, uh, that should not be the way your intake is, is approached. Now, let's say they don't necessarily go that route that some of these other folks are going, and they're actually just actually using nutrient-dense foods and still basing it around the, you know, the entire if it fits your macros diet. Like, how do you feel about that? You, is, there any scientific, is there any lab studies out there showing that this diet is even effective or there any, there's any basis to this diet or is it just something somebody came up with? Uh, I mean, it's, it's really the idea is like um, – in some ways, it's similar to the zone diet, right? Like you, if yeah. you line up your percentages correctly, you know, that'll, that'll optimize your, your body composition. You know, it doesn't always work out that well in, in research, but uh, when people consume adequate amounts of protein, carbs, and fats from nutrient-dense foods and get adequate amount of calories, that should work fantastically, right? I mean, right. that's, that's really what we're, what we're shooting for overall. Um, but I think the problem is most people don't do it the way you're describing, right. uh, where it's like, okay, I'm just going to eat lots of quality food. And in some ways, it's kind of what I just described to you as our framework, right? We use that framework of the two palms of protein, the two fists of veggies to help people utilize foods that will then fit their macros, right? They'll have some chicken or beef or fish or any type of protein source. Uh, we use two palms on purpose because it will give them approximately 50 to 60, 40 to 60 grams of protein you know, per meal. So if you're doing that, you know, depending on the size of the guy and everything, but if you're doing that four times a day, you're probably going to meet your protein needs and therefore your carb needs and fat needs and overall hopefully your calorie needs. So it's a similar kind of idea. So that approach isn't necessarily wrong. It just gets abused easily. Right. And basically, if you did it the way that we were just speaking of, then it's not, you can't even label it if it fits your macros. It just sounds like uh, you could just call it um, healthy eating. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right, common sense right. nutrition. Right. But let's just say <laughs> someone like... Um, you know, Mike's very proficient in hormone optimizations. Let's say someone has, like, some serious leptin issues and things like that going on hormonally. How do you help someone who's coming off of those deficiencies start with this two-fist, two-palms style of eating? Because they're probably going to be starving. Yeah, someone, like, with insulin resistance as well, for example, and just, let's say, thyroid issues, just a whole metabolic profile of issues. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it would it would depend, but in a lot of cases, you see stuff like that um, when you have a lot of thyroid and insulin uh, issues and leptin issues at the same time. To me, that usually speaks of someone who's been chronically overtraining and or like under eating calories and possibly carbs. Um, I know that seems backwards to a lot of people. You know, you'll see insulin resistance. People uh, misconstrue insulin resistance with they eat a lot of carbohydrates. Right. And that's not necessarily true, right? And it can be, but it's not. People think that insulin resistance is driven by carbohydrate consumption, whereas insulin resistance is usually driven by inflammation, um, which is usually driven by accumulation of body fat and or obesity. So in that regard, um, you can use the, the two, like the, the structure I was giving, but at the same time, I'd have to see where they're coming from to start. Like what does their diet look like right now or what, what had it looked like that led to these issues, right? Mm-hmm. And so not oftentimes, maybe it'll mean we have to up their carbs more than anything else to, because leptin is most sensitive to carbohydrate. Um, but we also want to keep cal- overall calories very much in check, especially with insulin resistance. Um, you know, if they have low thyroid, again, thyroid is most sensitive to total calories and then next to carbohydrate intake. So carbs have taken a bad rap uh, in our field for a while. I think it's just an overreaction to the first 10, 15, 20 years of nu- nutrient recommendations from the government, just like over-promoting carbohydrates, but right. people have gone too far the other way. Um, yeah, it under, seems like, it seems like there's an going back and forth in that. It seems like at one period uh, it's carbohydrates are in, and then all of a sudden they're not in, and then right. it's high-protein, right. high-fat. What, what do you think are some of the pitfalls of high-protein, high-fat, low-carbohydrate, especially in the context of athletic performance? Right. Uh, the, the research shows that those intakes on the whole are less effective. Um, even in fat-adapted athletes, they are, their overall performance on time trial tests or time-to-exhaustion tests um, are usually less so than, than, the, than the subjects consuming carbohydrates. Now, there is individual variability, right? There are always some outliers, some people who do extremely well with that kind of intake, mm-hmm. um, then there are people who do extremely poorly. But on the whole, they don't do as well. And then there was a, actually a fantastic uh, study that also talked about how even the fat-adapted athletes who did really well, they lost their ability to sprint as, as rapidly. So they were doing like mm-hmm. a bicycle test, mm-hmm. and they could – their time to exhaustion actually went up, but they could, which was a good thing, right? They could go longer, but they could not actually get to the same level of intensity. Right. Because we right. know high intensity stuff is fueled by glucose, right? Yeah. And so it was just more challenging for them. So overall, I'm not a fan of most athletes going with a high protein, high fat, low carbohydrate diet, but it, it can depend, right? There can be people who thrive on it, and there can be sports which are very, very low demand in terms of glucose. Now, you know, in powerlifting, for example, I mean, how much effort right, uh, or right. long-term effort does it take to, you know, to do a squat or a deadlift or a bench press? It's minimal, right, versus an endurance athlete who has much higher carbohydrate needs. So, right. Yeah, you're not going to run a marathon. You're not going to run a marathon on an Atkins <laughs> style diet. No, you're, you're I, mean, I, think that, I think you bring up a yeah. good point there because usually when someone's thriving on it, they're – they're doing like what you said. They're doing maybe heavy weights, low repetitions, and they're going, wow, this works great. So it should work great for everyone. Right. They, they all think that if it applies to them, it should apply to everybody. Right. Yeah, and that's, exactly. that's what I was going to actually bring up, the whole thing, the paleo phenomenon. And also even it's very popular with a lot of CrossFit athletes. But when you say that, you know, something short-term, something like powerlifting, which a lot of their sets are pretty short, you know, then, yeah, they might find some success with that. I was going to ask you, like, what's your opinion on that as far as so many – CrossFit athletes, you know, utilizing like a paleo diet or a zone diet or something like that. And, you know, how is that going to affect them, just in your opinion, in the long term, beyond that? I mean, in terms of, and you're actually seeing it now, like the paleo movement used to be very low carb. um, And I feel like it's evolved over time. And they've, on the whole, included more what, quote unquote, safe starches, uh, white rice, uh, sweet potatoes, things of that nature, because they have found that going so low carb in combination with their intense training over time kicks the shit out of them, right? Mm-hmm. They just can't sustain it because you're, you're, when you train that much, your carbohydrate needs to go up. It's just a fact. It's a physiological fact. Your body runs on glucose. So when you're not providing it, it has to make it elsewhere, which is a much less efficient system, and it ends up running into problems long term. You see... There's a, I mean, there's old research, we've known this for a long time, that when your carbohydrate intake relative to your training load is, is too low, 
your thyroid will decrease, your cortisol will go up, your testosterone will go down. Like this isn't new information, it's like forgotten information. Um, and I feel like we've, it was, we simply had an overreaction to an underreaction, right? We've overreacted to the fact that too many carbs can be a problem, so now we go to zero carb, when in reality, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. And in terms of CrossFit athletes, I mean, I think a, a zone-type diet is probably perfect for them, because even unless you're a competitive CrossFit athlete, like you're competing at the games and you're a really mm-hmm. high level, most quote-unquote CrossFitters are normal people like you and me or, or, or anybody else who has a, a regular job, per se. They probably mm-hmm. train four hours a week, right, five hours a week. Mm-hmm. When you're training five hours a week, your nutrient needs are not astronomically higher. Right. right. You're, not, you're not Michael Phelps. Okay, you're not That's the other thing people forget, too, I think, is that they're putting in their 45-minute workouts four times, <laughs> five times a week, and then they're eating five, six times a day like a professional athlete. Right. Most of the time, right. they're just sitting at, behind their desk or they're in a car or you know, they're, they're in a right. sedentary so, position. So you're not putting in three, times, three workouts per day. Yeah, so to meet right. their needs, if you're, if you're consuming, you throw out 2,500 calories, right? If you're 2,500 calories at, at 40% is what? I, mean, I can't even do the math on the top of my head. 1,000 calories. So right. if you're getting 250 grams of approximately of carbohydrates a day and you're training five times a week, that's probably pretty good as a ballpark number for, for an average guy. Right? That's not too high. It's not too low. It's enough to supply your brain with glucose, to meet your training needs, but not so much that you're causing overconsumption and, and driving up other issues. So, right. right. I think you kind of know, right? Like Sincere and I teach a lot of workshops, and I think you can attest, Sincere, that after – after a hard day of six, eight hours of instruction, I mean, you could eat probably three days' worth of food afterwards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not, you don't even be bloated. You could go hit a buffet in Las Vegas and chow down, and, and you're going to be fine. Because right. Those, but that's you might not surprise yourself. And lose, you get on the scale, and you've lost like two pounds. You're like, well, dude, I just went to the Bellagio, <laughs> and I just went buck wild. And I lost two <laughs> pounds. Awesome. <laughs> But then when people try to do that every day, that's, that's, a, that's a different story. No one gets excited about the middle path is what I, is, is what I come across quite a bit, right? Is that I think that's why people are so intrigued by these extremes, you know, mm-hmm. low carb, or mm-hmm. high protein or low fat or no meat or only meat, you know, whatever it is. I think those, those are more enticing to people for whatever reason. Do you come across that phenomenon Absolutely. quite a bit? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. You come across that phenomenon Constantly, you know, like when I was uh, working specifically as a coach for PN, like I do some coaching now, but I was, I was, I used to be a coach in like our, our coaching program, uh, what used to be called Lean Eating, and you know I had a couple hundred clients, and that came across all the time. Um, you know, people who would come to me, oh, I, I read about you know this paleo diet, or I read about X, or I read about Y. Um, you know, what do you think about that? Because it was something sexy and enticing, and it and it right. promised all these cool things, right? It promised the, the, to be the magic bullet to whatever it is they're trying to do. And in reality, I think it's, it's hard for people to, to just remember that it's about consistently doing like, the, the few big principles that are going to get results. Like You could have the best nutrient timing in the world, but if you overconsume your intake by 500 calories a day, you're not going to get the results you want. Right? You could eat the perfect paleo diet, but if you, if you eat more calories than you expend, you're not going to lose weight. It's just a matter of thermodynamics that it just can't be denied um and people like to think that it'll it'll work out differently somehow but it, it it's, it's not right it's, it's the middle of the road you know for most people to me works very well for about 70 percent of the population that standard framework that i, that I gave you with the palms and, and the cupped hands and stuff like that mm-hmm. works really well now of course there are standard deviations of that which we use with body type and things of that nature um and then for training load we will we, we'll adjust it but for most people, most of the time, that initial framework works really well. Um, but you just have to do it consistently over the long haul. Right. What about the concept that not all calories are created equal? So, for example, if someone goes over 500 calories, but it's high-quality protein, vegetables, et cetera, versus someone going over 500, but it's ice cream or cake, cookies, mm-hmm. et cetera, is it still, do you still abide by the whole it's calories in, calories out, or is it where your food choice is going to make a difference with uh, food choices, of course, make it. I mean, it, yeah. it, it is calories in, calories out, but people don't see ultimately, yeah, right. But that calories out is not a static number, right? right. So mm-hmm. if you consume a lot of protein, well, protein requires more energy to digest it. Exactly. So your yeah. calories out go up. Uh, if you consume a lot of vegetables, again, very fibrous, harder to digest, your calories out go up. Um, 
you, you know, but still, excess calories are still excess calories. It's just degrees of excess. And so consuming 500 extra calories of, of ice cream is more problematic simply for, for a lot of reasons that we could really get into when you talk about <laughs> food reward and, and food palatability and causing inflammation in the brain from hyperpalatable foods. Uh, when you eat a lot of processed foods like that, you can actually change brain chemistry, which can then yeah. drive you to consistently eat more calories. Versus, you know, overeating on protein and vegetables is, is, can be done, but it's much harder to do, and it's much harder to do long term. Right, exactly. Um, no, one, no, one's gonna, no one's gonna crave. No one has a bowl of broccoli and goes, "Man, I want four more." Right, exactly, right. exactly. An apple may be really yeah. delicious. Yeah, you don't go crush four more apples, right? But yeah, you exactly. start a bag of chips. You can eat a whole bag of chips in one sitting. Exactly. Or you grab the bucket of apples and just start plowing through it. <laughs> right. That's, that's not a common occurrence. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, let me ask you this, Brian. Now, how what is how important is it when it comes to recovery and sleep as well? Because I know we're talking about training. We're talking about our diet here, but I think that missing element is always recovery and sleep. Mm-hmm. And and how do you drive this home with your clients as well? Uh, sleep's very important to me. I actually wrote an article for PM called like, Engineering a Good Night's Sleep. And so it's one of the things we really cover, like in our PM coaching, is, is getting seven hours of sleep, you know, creating a sleep routine, um, optimizing your sleep environment. Those are all things we go over with clients, and I'll go over with, with personal clients as well, depending on, on the situation. But if, if they're nutrition's in order and their training's in order, we absolutely will tackle sleep and recovery because you're right, it's the third big pillar. It's just as important as training and nutrition. Um, and I've seen a lot of guys or even a lot of like, high-strung athletes who sleep four or five hours a night and wonder why they're not getting where they want to go because they're not recovering and then you can't adapt if you don't recover appropriately. So we cover all kinds of stuff. And you know, If you want to get into specifics, I'll be more than happy to. Oh, sure. I mean, sure. And, and also... Is there an optimal time that everyone probably should be going to sleep? You know, we hear a lot about the circadian rhythm, but it's, humans are very adaptable at this point. And mm-hmm. I think so is it just as long as you're getting seven to nine hours of sleep at any time, or does it have to be a specific time where you need to be in bed, like, say, 9 o'clock p.m. and going from there and you're waking up at butt crack 30 and things like that? So, you know, so I, I, that sounds have, like my schedule in bed by 9 o'clock. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's my mom's schedule, too. <laughs> so, and it's always been her schedule. You know, so she's getting up at 4 in the morning making coffee, and I'm hearing yep. noise in the kitchen, like, go to sleep, woman. Yeah, that was so, my mom you know, as well, man. I know the feeling. <laughs> so what do you say to people who, let's say they have the graveyard shift or something like that, so how is this going to work out for folks? who are not necessarily getting to bed at that time. How does that I work? Mean, or it's is one that, of those things like ide- ideal versus real, reality, right? Mm-hmm. Idealistically, would I like people to get in bed by 10 o'clock and, and sleep until 6? Like, yeah, that would be awesome. But at the same time, like there are people who simply – actually was just reading a study that showed like there are people who truly are night owls and people who truly are morning people. And if you try to pigeonhole them into a certain structure, it actually does not work as well. Um, cause their their personal circadian rhythm, circadian clock, you know, whatever you want to call it, is different than mine or yours. And so that can be changed over time, but you can still have people who genetically are more wired to stay up later and sleep later and, and some to go to bed earlier and, and, and to get up earlier. Mm-hmm. And so I worry a little bit less about that. It's, it's something we, we talk about. I mean, if it's a big problem, if they're going to bed at 1 and still have to get up at 5, like that's an issue. Yeah. Uh, you just need to, you know, if you have to get up at five, then you need to go to bed earlier, whether you like to or not, simply because you require a certain amount of sleep to recover appropriately. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I base it on what's the reality of the situation. What time do you have to get up, you know, or what time do you like to get up? And then we try to backtrack from there. Um, so would I like people to go to bed before midnight, you know, because there's the idea that every hour of sleep before midnight is worth two? Sure, but if it's not the reality, if they have the graveyard shift, so be it, right? We just do the best we can. We work around it. I'd still rather you have somewhat of a consistent sleep routine. That can be just as important as how much sleep you get. If you go to bed at 9 o'clock one night, midnight the next, 8.30 the next, you know, if you're constantly fluctuating, mm-hmm. that can actually be challenging because it can really disrupt your circadian clock. Your body doesn't know what's going where and what's happening mm-hmm. when. Um, it, your body, your brain, especially in that regard, craves routine. So if you just get into a routine with a certain time of night, you brush your teeth, you floss, whatever it is you do, right, to power down, mm-hmm. read a book, that'll actually help you fall asleep more rapidly and it'll help you have more quality sleep consistently. And yeah. so I prefer a consistent sleep time as much as possible and a consistent amount of sleep as much as possible. Now, granted, you know, if you're like me and you have a, a six-month-old kid, like that makes <laughs> it a little more that. of a challenge, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good luck, so there are, there are always, you know, real life kicks you in the teeth, right? But you do the right. best you can 
um, you know, to do those things. So idealistically, yeah, go to bed before midnight, get seven to nine hours. But if you work the graveyard shift, so be it. We'll try to get the seven to nine hours afterwards, right, as best we can. That, that, yeah. that is what it is, man. And right. we'll be making up extra hours on the weekend. Would that be useful for so if someone's more sleep-deprived during the week, you just try to get in a couple extra hours during the weekend or whenever you can? Absolutely. I mean, the, according yeah. to sleep researchers, like, sleep debt is cumulative. And so the more right. sleep right. debt you have, like, the work, but you can, you can undo that um, by getting extra sleep when you can. Right. Now, it, it's not like you can sleep 14 hours in one day and feel <laughs> awesome. Like, you're probably going to feel pretty crappy. Right, exactly. If you think I get up at five o'clock on Saturday like I do during the rest of the week, like you're nuts, right? I sleep until my kids get up, uh, and then I get up. So you being a father and you having a six-month-old, now how important? What do you what do you find as far as the importance of taking naps? Now can that help with some of that sleep deficit as well by taking naps throughout the day? So let's say you got maybe you may get three good hours of sleep a night before your six-month-old wakes up, and then you're up for about two hours, then you get another three hours, and then he's up again. So right now you've got a split six right there, and you haven't even made it to seven-hour sleep period right there. So, how, I mean, how important is naps? Uh, fortunately, he's doing better than that now, but naps, um, mm-hmm. especially in the earlier stages of having an infant, are, mm-hmm. can be huge. Um, like, you know, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter as well, so if, if she was sleeping and my son was sleeping, you know, on the weekend, like, you're damn right, my wife and I were trying to sleep as well um, <laughs> yeah. because you, you just have to. Otherwise, it's hard to function, right? It's hard right. to do the things you want to do because you are just so sleep-deprived. And so naps can be huge, like a 30-minute nap. I'm, I'm a fan of keeping it, like, you know, 20 to 30 minutes, just getting a cat yeah. nap. Um, the longer your nap, the more sleep, what's called sleep inertia you're going to have, so the longer it takes to kind of recover from your nap and get processes going. Yeah, but man. at the same time, the more benefit you can get. So it's a little bit of give and take. If you take a longer nap, it can give you a bigger boost, but it just takes longer to get there. Yeah, sometimes, versus, sometimes it's hard to get up from a nap because right. when you're in that 30 minutes, you're just like, man, this feels great. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> yeah, just you're kind of dozing start. in and out. Okay, you're kind of coming in and out of consciousness. Like, this feels good. Oh, you're groggy. You feel like dog shit. Absolutely. Yeah, you if you wake up and, and now you can't sleep that night because right, right, right. So yeah, you don't want to take it too close to yeah. sleep time, and of course. Oh, just one last thing about sleep. Um, have you had clients where they were those typical night owls that you just spoke about a few minutes ago? And as far as if, if you did have them, like, what are your concerns as far as like cortisol? Is that an issue um, with someone who that that is that natural night owl and they they're up all night and their sleep cycle is pretty much like oh, okay, I'm good a little bit more going to sleep later in the morning or something like that. So what have issues, have you seen any issues with those clients if you've had those as far as cortisol and how do you address that? Um, I have seen issues with clients in terms of cortisol and in affecting their, their sleep quality or their cortisol being uh, having strange um, timelines. You know, it's supposed mm-hmm. to elevate in the morning and drop off at night versus you see people who it's lower in the morning and, and rises at nighttime, which is, you know, very odd and it's going to affect your, your sleep quality. Um, but I can't say it's always correlated well with necessarily night owls. Like there are some people who just are night owls. But if, if you do have an issue with cortisol, you know, and in terms of, you know, if your cortisol, your morning cortisol is elevated or, or not elevated and it's higher than it should be at nighttime, like that's something to discuss with your doctor, right? That, that's, that's something physiologically going wrong that's pro- going to be problematic long term. So it's something you want to square away. And it could be something as simple as, an overtraining issue or you can even call it like an under recovery issue because overtraining in and of itself is like a a big deal and it's not overall very common in the lay population right it happens with people who train a ton Um, a true overtraining is like you are you are literally crushed like anything becomes a problem and so i I usually think of it as more of like an under recovery issue Mm -hmm. and a lot of times it can be people just under consuming calories and carbohydrates and then just not able to recover it can then disrupt their HPA axis, and then they have cortisol issues, they have thyroid issues. Um, it could be something as simple as that, but it could be a lot of other things going on. So if you have, or if you suspect you have, um, like, cortisol issues, it's something I would definitely get checked out and, and talk to your doctor about, because it could be something far more than just carbohydrates and calories. Right. I think that's a good point, and the fact that a lot of people that are working really hard, they're probably going a lot longer than they should without eating. And when they are eating, it's not high-quality stuff. So their, mm-hmm. their total caloric intake is not good in and of itself. And then what it's comprised of is not good either. So it's a double whammy negative. Right. And they're clearly going to be – and then you try to throw training on top of that, 
mm-hmm. you're going to be in a total under-recovery state. Mm-hmm. I, I think people... if they're restricting food intake, sure. Right, right. So I think people diminish that way too much. They somehow feel that they, they just keep putting in their workouts and they're running on adrenaline, but they're, they're not getting anywhere. They're getting mm-hmm. weaker at each workout, but they're still just punching in the clock. And that's why I always tell people it's so important to keep a training journal because you need to right. know exactly what's going on. I mean, Sincere and I were just talking about the show stats before you came on, and that's very important information for us because it lets us know what our listeners want to hear, how well our show is progressing. If we never looked at that, then we're just guessing. For all we right. know, we have two people listening. You know? right. But because, <laughs> because we see those stats, we're like, wow, this thing is really blowing up. It's growing. And then that's encouraging as well. But people who work out where they're just going into the gym and they're just doing whatever, they don't have a plan when they go in, they're not keeping track of what's going on there. I think it's very easy to get stuck in that cycle mm-hmm. where you're just spinning your wheels and you're not going anywhere. I think one, one great thing about training is it really lets us know if everything else is dialed in. So when you're working out hard and you're progressing nicely, your physique composition is improving, you're getting stronger, you know, whatever your goals are, you know things are dialed in. But when you're going long periods of time without making any progress, something's clearly off. Right. And I th- yeah, and I think you're spot on. I think a lot of people also get in the mindset of, like, this should work, right? Brian St. Pierre told me this would work, and I'm, I keep doing it, <laughs> doing it, doing it, and I'm not making progress. Like, well, it, it's like, a come on, starting yes, point, right? You've got to make some adjustments, man. Like, if it's not working, like, try something else. Um, BSB, I'm not impressed with your performance. <laughs> right. And that's just it. But you'll see a lot of people who get stuck in that. Well, like I read this, like Mike Mahler said this will work, and I'm doing it, and it's not working. It's like, well, I said it should work, but you also have to, you know, adjust for this. Or there, there could be a, so many variables, but people get stuck in the mindset of like, well, well like a guy it'll, bought my it'll eventually work, booster. damn it, you know? Yeah, exactly. I had a guy buy my testosterone booster recently, and he goes, you know, I bought two bottles of it at separate times, and he goes, I'm not happy at all. It didn't work at all. I'm like, well, why did you buy the second bottle? The first <laughs> you know, I mean, I'll give you a refund because I'm a cool guy, but I mean, right. if I take something for a month and I don't get any benefit, I'm not going to buy another bottle of it and see if it changes. I'm certainly not going to buy it without talking to, to the manufacturer or the company and say, hey, look, I tried it. It didn't work out well for me. You know, what could I have done differently? So it, it's kind of funny when... And then, and then people don't realize that even something like Viagra, a drug, it, it only works 50% of the time, according to mm-hmm. studies. I was shocked mm-hmm. when I read that because I would have assumed it's much higher than that. And that's a pharmaceutical drug with allegedly a lot of research behind it and so forth. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's not – I think people get overly excited about stuff and then they just – they think there has to be something wrong with it because it didn't work for them when they're, they're, mm-hmm. the real, real solution is how do you personalize this stuff? Yeah, it's like a relationship. It's like it's not, it's not, the, test, it's not the supplement, buddy. It's you. <laughs> you, my, you, my friend, are what we call a non-responder. Non-responder. Now, make a commercial around that. Oh, my God, I'm a non-responder. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, people take it personally is where I'm going. I know. Like, exactly. They're non-responder, man. It's okay. Even creatine, the most well-researched sports nutrition supplement, even that has not responders and for those of us that responded well to it it's hard for us to believe it because i, mean, I remember the first time i took it in 1995 i was like wow this is awesome stuff right so but, but everything has non-responders but it's funny when people Statins think that have non-responders absolutely you know <laughs> <laughs> let's get into that nutrition supplements because i know that's another area of your expertise what are maybe we can start that again just like we did nutrition what are some of the baselines you look for when you start designing supplement regimens for athletes and then how you personalize that? Yeah, I mean, we have like a very standard, um, like basic amount of recommendations we make. You know, we have a, you're a basic, simple multivitamin, multimineral just to prevent nutrient deficiencies. It's not meant to uh, have super physiological doses of anything. Um, that may come later depending on needs, but just, just for baseline stuff, you're talking that, fish oil, uh, probiotic, and maybe like some vitamin D, creatine that type of area. Um, So that's like your basic five starting point. Um, But then it depends from there. Like if if they, let's say they break a leg, right, or they have some other soft tissue injury, we might recommend a certain protocol, you know, with arginine and with extra vitamin A and extra zinc. You know, there could be a number number of different things to help promote healing, uh, decrease inflammation, so extra fish oil, curcumin. Um, It would depend on the situation. But for the most part, that's like our standard um, our standard recommendations, then we just individualize from there based on their sport, right? If they're MMA and they have a lot of intense bursts, and in some ways a very high aerobic demand, um, you know, maybe we'll do some beta alanine, but I'm not going to use beta alanine with a power lifter, right? right. Their, their needs don't require it. 
And so it, it depends on the individual, um, on performance, on needs, but for the most part, uh, that's our standard recommendation, and then we'll individualize from there. Now, how often do you hear someone say, hey, I took that multivitamin, I didn't feel anything? <laughs> <laughs> I've actually heard that before. You actually, you'd be surprised. I've heard that. It seems to me that people will say stuff like, oh, I took that lipoic acid, I didn't really feel anything. It's like, well, I don't, what are you supposed to feel? It's not like <laughs> caffeine. It's not a stimulant. What are you, you know, looking for? <laughs> you know. That vitamin D didn't do anything for me. I didn't feel a thing. <laughs> and, I, you know, and, and sometimes it's, it's I will, when I talk about supplements with, with clients, I will frame the expectations. <laughs> You know, right. multivitamin, multimineral, the sole purpose of taking that is to just prevent nutrient deficiencies, right? right? It's not to, you know, if you have a serious nutrient deficiency, it's not meant to restore you, right? If you have like a severe vitamin D deficiency, 400 IUs for multivitamin is not going to fix that, right. right? Right. And so it's it's simply meant as an insurance policy. And so I'll just try you to guys, frame. You guys do any, oh, sorry. No, I'm just saying, I'll just try to frame like, recommendations. Go ahead. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Do you do anything like spectrocell testing where you look at blood work of vitamins and minerals? Do you guys um, get that specific? We, we have not done spectrocell at PN. I did it um, at a place called Eternity Healthcare in Connecticut where I worked for a while with Cassandra Forsyth. But okay. um, yeah. we actually, we are partnering with Thorn FX. Um, so we're going to be starting some blood work. You know, how far that's going to extend with clients or if we're just going to do it um, with athletes, we're not entirely sure what we're going to do with it yet, but we're partnering with them, and we're going to have the ability to do stuff like that. And so that's something that's in its infancy, um, but I don't know much more than that, to be honest. Did you find that information really useful when you're doing it in the past, or, would you, or did you find that maybe it's just being overly analytical? Like um, yes and no. It, it, can be, yeah. it can be helpful. I think it's helpful more to see trends than any right. individual snapshot because right. – Blood levels of some things don't always correlate to intake. Um, like blood levels of fatty acids don't necessarily correlate to the fat intake from your diet. There can be things of that nature, so it's hard to right. say exactly, but it can be helpful to just see trends over time. Like, wow, you know, your magnesium levels have dropped. There could be a million different things, um, but it's the trends I like to see. Okay, like uh, I'm looking at it, and this has dropped. This has gone up. How come? What's changed? Um, I see. You know, you know, there can be some things. Sure. I mean, and after this was like three, four years ago, I worked there and did that. Um, right. So it's you're asking me some questions, I'm trying to re, you know revamp my memory here. Um, so it can be helpful, yes, but I wouldn't use it as the be all end all. It's just one more tool in your coaching toolbox. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel too. Because I think sometimes blood work can be distracting. I, I think it's useful, but I think it can be distracting for some people mm-hmm. where they they feel great and like, oh, I can't wait to see what my testosterone levels are. And then they get the number, and it's not as high as they would have liked. And all, now, right. all of a sudden, they don't feel great, even though they right. felt great right. before they saw right. that. <laughs> like, so that, that could be a great number for you, right? Just because yeah, exactly. The, exactly. You know, that, I, I, that's a great point. Or people will see the number and think like, oh, my testosterone's in the only in the middle rather than up in the high end. It's like, well, like, okay. Well, that muscle like, and fitness I'm, article said I should be at 800 for total. Right. I'm, less of, I'm less of a yeah. man. <laughs> right, right, right. I need Viagra right. now. <laughs> yeah. And he's uh, 25. Hope you're not a non-responder, right? <laughs> so, yeah, uh, absolutely, you're, you're spot on. Yeah, so I, mean, I, I, I like it personally. I mean, I just, but, I, but I, I, I did find that when I was doing a lot of different testing, I'm like, okay, this, this is causing me to overly analyze things a little mm-hmm. bit too much now. I think I'm mm-hmm. just giving too much. I'm going, oh, what's, why is this happening? And then you're just really consumed by that. Right. right. And, and, and it might not be that big of a deal. Yeah. And then, or, or you're drawing the wrong correlation. It's just that's not the reason why you think it's going on. Yeah, I mean, like, vitamin, like your vitamin D levels could be low, but not because you're not taking enough vitamin D. You know, your vitamin D levels could be low because of a nutrition, nutrient absorption issue or you have some type of inflammation issue. There could be other things going on. So it's not necessarily from a poor intake level, right? It could be from, there could be some other hidden cause. And you're just exactly. matching it by supplementing to, to bring up that low value. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, it's not necessarily measuring what's going on with your gut health, like you said, right. with the abortion right. issues and things right. like that. So, and a lot of times you go to a general practitioner, they may not catch that or even know it, really mm-hmm. think anything about that. I mean, I just recently, I recently just did my yearly physical, and when I went to get my blood work, and he asked, okay, well, we, what do you want tested? I said, oh, I want to go ahead and get a full hormone panel. And he said, why would you want to do that? Yep. I'm like, because, he said, well, that's usually, we do that for like much older guys and, you know, people are like in their 70s. I'm like, I don't want to wait until there's a problem to get a test for a problem. Right. It's like, I right. want to make, it's called, I don't want to sit there and wait until my car breaks down and decide like, you know what, 
I should have got an oil change. Oil change. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't, you don't sit there just get an oil change, you know, just, just thinking like, well, you know, why am I doing this? No, you're doing it to prevent some issues from happening with your car. So right. he just looked at me and this, I'm like, he's a young doctor too. And he just looked at me so confused. He was like, I don't get it. He said, well, um, well, we don't do that here, but you know, I commend you for thinking about that. I'm like, really, really guy. So they won't do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm I mean, amazed that they won't do. I'm, I'm amazed. Like, that I want, I'll pay for the test, man. That's right, the thing. Exactly. Like I'm giving you money, man. You're <laughs> right, right. You're In exchange always, for a service. <laughs> I've seen the. I find, I find some doctors. Broke. <laughs> yes, I find some doctors don't like you coming in there and being your own doctor. Basically, <laughs> say, like, I want to have this stuff done for my own information. They're like, well, you know, I'm not going to take the time to look at that, so why would you want that done? You know, exactly. it's kind of like that mentality. Yeah, yeah it's like, I want to know I'm 30 years old, whatever the case may be. I want to have my know my hormone panel so that when I do it again at 40, I can see what's changed. Yeah, exactly. My, my testosterone is exactly. the same or my testosterone's dropped or, you know, whatever the case may Absolutely. be. It became it's an interview. He's like, well, what happened? What happened, you know, when you got a test? How often do you do it? I said, oh, at least once a year. Oh, <laughs> so what did you discover? I'm like, wait a minute. Now you become my shrink. Okay. Right, 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 right. Exactly. <laughs> How did it make you feel? asking you a lot of questions and this happened to me with anti-aging doctors where i'm talking to this guy and then all of a sudden he's at, was like well what do you think about this supplement what do you think about this i'm like i don't mind telling you but i'm not going to pay to tell you all right <laughs> right right exactly. I, I've, been, I've been giving you advice for 15 minutes on a 30 minute consult call that i'm paying you for you know? i'm gonna need a <laughs> refund buddy <laughs> what's funny is i would make these recommendations to this guy who would make them back to me like a couple years later he'd be like hey uh, you know, there's this great supplement called Myomin. It's good for estrogen control. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm the one who told you about it, Jack Off. You know? yeah. That's what we call crackhead syndrome. When they steal your stereo out of your car, and then two days later they try to sell it back to you. Yeah, that's exactly what I remember that I gave this guy a free kettlebell DVD, and he didn't really get into it at the time. And then I saw him years later. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I really got into that kettlebell training. I picked up this guy, Popo's video. I'm like, well, what is he the one I had? You know? <laughs> People cracked me up. I'm glad you got into it, but you could have got into it four years ago if you watched that video I gave you. Before. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, uh, with the, back to the, the, the whole nutrient time, you said a lot of athletes fall within the four meals per day. Is there a kind of a set fast rule of how many hours in between those meals, or does it go from four to more meals or less, or does, does that vary quite a bit? Um, you know, when we give like the general four meal a day recommendation, it's just a number we found works well for a lot of people, right? You, right. Know, you get to you don't have to think about eating constantly. You know, I used to eat eight times a day in college, right? So that was that, but it was it was my life revolved around eating, and so we yeah, just found over time that for eating four times a day, you know, like every four hours, um, works well for most people. But if you right. like to eat more often or less often, you know, that's that's cool with us too. Like meal frequency. Um, is not something we are tremendously concerned with. Obviously, it'll, you'll have to adjust your meal size, right? If you want to eat three times a day, it'll have to be a right. little bit bigger. If you want to eat six times a day, it'll be a little bit smaller. Um, and so you, I just like personally, I like to recommend evenly spaced meals because it just keeps it easy um, yeah. rather than constantly fluctuating. But, you know, there are no hard and fast rules per se. We're, you know, at PN, for that, we're fairly flexible, um, you know, JB himself usually only eats like two to three times a day. Um, right. Some people on staff will eat six times a day. That's just how they like to do it, and it works for them. So, you know, it's personal preference, but for the four times a day recommendation, it's about every three to four hours. Yeah, I think I think four is right in the middle. I think that that's definitely a good recommendation. I found that six or seven, personally, when I was much younger, I tried that after reading all these fitness magazines. That, that, was, that was terrible. You always felt mm-hmm. like you had to have food around at all times. Like, okay, let me make sure there's a protein bar in my glove compartment in case I get stuck <laughs> in the car. Let me make sure I have this meal here. And if you missed one of those meals, you would just crash. And you got so used to getting those little fixes every couple yeah. hours. And you were never fully satisfied, right? Exactly. You a meal and That's like, the other eh. thing. You're always hungry. You're never really satisfied. Exactly. So I, I, it's funny, but it's true. I, had, I kept food all over the place. You know, it was, you, you just... I'd bring it with me to class. I would, it was constant. It was perpetual. Um, yeah. you, know, you, looked like a, you looked like a crazy person. I'd be the only person in class, like, constantly munching down meals. And it was, like, bringing Tupperware with me. Like, it was, you know, it was a hardcore lifestyle that's not necessary unless you're looking for hardcore results. You know, you're looking to yeah, my, stage. Yeah, my friend Nate. Yeah, exactly. My friend Nate Morrison, he was on the show, a pararescue guy. So he would say those kind of guys were the worst people to be with in the field because they're used to eating six times a day or more. And, 
if they missed one of those little meals, they would crash. Mm-hmm. Now they're becoming a liability in this right. last one year in their line of work. I can believe it. So it's, <laughs> it's something that we, again, I think we've really tried to steer towards just more middle of the road, and then you can deviate from there and, and find what works for you. Um, right. But starting in the middle allows you a lot of wiggle room to see what works better. When you start at one extreme, it's really hard to then find out what works for you because maybe it's only two a day that works for you and you're doing seven, right? So you're nowhere right. near that right now. So start in the right. middle and then you can experiment and find what works for your schedule. And it, it might change, right? Yeah. When I didn't have any kids and I wasn't married, I could eat eight times a day. You know, my <laughs> lifestyle is totally different today, you know, so... <laughs> Yeah, give you those four, meals four up meals now. They work. Right? <laughs> right, here's two meals for you, two for you, two for you out of my eight that I had. <laughs> right, right, right. So it's, it, I think people have to keep that in mind. Like what works for you right now might not work for you 10 years from now. Right, right. right no and doubt. then again, you got day-to-day stuff that's going on where it's going to have to change then. One day you can get eight in. One day you may get two in. Right. And, you know, there's some people that will panic like, I only ate once today. Oh, I'm going <laughs> to die. What am I going right. to do? And they just got to ravage themselves the next day like, dude, calm down. It's not that serious. But yeah, you look like it's like the, the guy saying that looks like a bear. It's like you could hibernate for a while, buddy. Don't worry. You, know? you, can, you can skip the rest of this week and you'll be okay. So don't worry you're, about it. You're okay, Yogi. It's okay. He's just <laughs> What about uh, water consumption? And starting with, what, what do you think is the highest quality way to get the best water? So reverse osmosis, good water filter. What are your recommendations on that front? And then consumption. I mean, the highest quality water, yeah, maybe reverse yeah. osmosis, but right. that's probably not practical for most people. You know, you're probably right. talking you know, a significant investment to have some RO water. Um, mm-hmm. And the only issue with RO water is it, it does remove fluoride. So if, if that's something that concerns you, right, it's something just to be aware of. Personally, I just use, um, I filter my water just through my fridge, uh, and I change that regularly because there was a... Uh, who did the? It, was, it wasn't really a, a published study, but it was like ABC News or something. Like compared, like a Brita <laughs> versus fridge filter versus a couple others, and then had it had it run by a lab um, to see you know how much they removed of like pharmaceuticals, of pesticides, of things that end up in your water that aren't removed by your water treatment company by your city, um, and the fridge filter did the best. So it, hmm. it removed. It, it wasn't like this humongous difference, but. It's just an activated carbon filter. It's going to remove lead. It's going to remove cysts. It's going to remove the pesticides, herbicides, pharmaceuticals from your water. Um, Things that are most concerning, it's going to remove the majority of them. And it's also very, very practical and easy, right? Or you can do an activated carbon filter. It's probably your best bang for your buck Um, in terms of overall value. The most ideal system would probably combine that with RO, um, but you're talking like a significant investment. And mm-hmm. so like, I haven't gone that route. Um, my wife's a dentist, so removing fluoride from the water is probably not going to be looked upon very well in my house. Um, <laughs> well, but, what do you think about fluoride? Yeah, I was just about to ask you about fluoride. Make sure your wife's not listening to the show. I was about to ask. <laughs> She's you know, in the other said, room, actually. Yeah, we're like, well, well, about fluoride, you know, there's all these concerns about fluoride for, right, for a lot of right. reasons and a lot of mm-hmm. studies that back it up. So what's your opinion on fluoride? Now, tell the wife to leave the room when you say that. <laughs> my, my you don't want you sleeping on, on the couch tonight, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Having my a personal moment. opinion on fluoride is people go batshit crazy with, with minimal overall data. Um, right. You know, like they've, they've actually lowered the amount of fluoride. I'm pretty sure it's federally. Uh, I'm not 100% sure of that, but I know they've at least lowered it like in my city. It used to be like one part per million, now it's like 0.7, and I'm pretty sure that's a federal change, but I'm not 100% positive um, because that's like the minimum dose needed to still prevent you know, or decrease risk of getting cavities. And so consuming fluoride, is it, is it going to guarantee you're not going to get cavities? Like, of course not. Um, but when you look at like the, so like the 1950s, you know, I'm, I'm kind of throwing some numbers out there that may or not be 100% true, um, but I know it was some point earlier in the last century, right before they had fluoridated water, and then when they in- included it, like cavity percentages dropped off the map. Um, so it, it worked. But we've been doing it for like 60 years. And so you figure you get cavities from bacteria. Bacteria evolve, right? Just yeah. like viruses evolve and, and diseases evolve, bacteria evolve. And so when they've been exposed to fluoride for like 60 years, it seems to be less effective today. But it can still, it basically strengthens the enamel of your teeth and decreases the ability of the bacteria to cause cavities. So it's a good thing from that perspective. In terms of consuming it and potential health risks, I mean, I've read some of the stuff. I get the concern, but to me, 
the the benefit outweighs the risk. Unless you're consuming like tremendous amounts of fluoride, right. it's it's not going to be a health problem. Like if you, if you live if you have uh, well water like I used to have, we had our well water tested and the fluoride level was really high. Um, so we actually stopped drinking our well water because it was like 2.7 parts a million, so it was like four times above what the city would put in there. Um, that can cause fluorosis. That can co- maybe cause some other issues. And so in that regard, sure. But with how much city water or, you know, your, your, your local water is allowed to have, in my mind, it's not really a health concern. Now, how much water is too much water? Because you have some people, you know, you always see that one dude in the gym that walks around with a okay, gallon of water. Gallon jug, oh, yeah. With the, the, one, you the know, going to the plastic squat rack. they've been using for like a year. That's probably full of God knows what. Oh, you know, gosh, uh, yeah. Um, you know, leaching BPA and phthalates into their water, and that's a bigger issue. Um, but how much water is too much? I mean, you can, you can actually overconsume water, right? We've seen people die from, because it causes hyponatremia, like low levels of electrolytes, and then your heart can't beat. Um, that's happened in the military. It's happened in, in endurance, endurance athletes. It's incredibly rare. Right? So for that to happen, um, it would require an enormous amount of water. I think an adequate amount of water. I'm a fan of a really simple, like, take your body weight, divide it in half. That's how many ounces of fluid you should consume per day. You know, so for me, I'm like 190 pounds. You know, it's 95 ounces. Do I, do I specifically make sure I get exactly 95 ounces? No, but it's pretty easy to ballpark it. Right? A glass of water is 12 ounces. Right. I have quite a few glasses of water, some cups of coffee, some tea, maybe a glass of wine or a beer at dinner. Like my fluid intake, um, you know, it's pretty easy for me to, to make sure. And then you just, your greatest feedback is the color of your urine. If the color of your urine is really dark, you're not consuming enough. If it's right. relatively light, you're probably doing okay. Right. right. And you just mentioned something else I was going to ask you about. Like what else can, I mean, what else can constitute that fluid intake that's still healthy when you talk in terms of, say, tea, coffee? Um, I, I drink, dude probably about two, maybe two or three pots of tea a day. So that's a lot of water consumption right there. That's, that's, a, lot of water. that's a lot of yeah. tea, man. Yeah, but, that's a, but you know what? That's a lot of clear pee also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your, your kidneys are probably very efficient. Trust me, uh, I, I made a couple of runs to the restaurant while we were doing this show right now. I'm like, oh, I believe it. Yeah, keep talking. Um, you know, it's as one of those portable devices you could be in like, a long car drive. Yeah, you just sit in the right there, in the bucket right next to you. Uh, I'm so surprised that even now, every now and then during the show, I'll text Mike while he's talking. I'm like, yeah, keep talking. I'm eating like a racehorse. <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of like tea consumption and coffee consumption, those yeah. can certainly count towards your total intake. Actually, I was. I, I get uh, like science daily updates on on research every day because I just I love keeping up on it. Mm-hmm. There was something just about ca- coffee and caffeine intake, and people who habitually consume coffee and or tea or just habitually consume a caffeinated beverage, um, up to like 550 milligrams, I think it was, of, of caffeine daily, mm-hmm. there was no difference in hydration status for people who didn't consume any coffee or tea. So because nope. you become used to it, like when you first start drinking coffee, you know, right. if you've never had coffee before, it'll cause a diuretic effect. You'll, you'll you know, pee out more yeah. than you take in. That was my because your body adjusts to the intake. Mm-hmm. No big deal. It just becomes part of your. I mean, is there probably a level that's going to override that? Sure, but for most people with most intakes, um, you know, coffee and tea definitely count towards your fluid intake. Okay. Yeah, I was just about to bring three, up the three entire, parts of tea might be pushing your pushing your limits. Uh, but it's not all at one and, time. It's throughout the day. So and you know, tea is actually a great source of fluoride, a natural source of fluoride. So you're actually consuming fluoride just from drinking green tea. Uh huh. So yeah, that, that's all diuretic myth because a lot of people are like, well, coffee's a diuretic and it's actually, you know, it tastes pulling water from your body. I'm like, what, it, it what, does kind, not. Of, what kind of coffee are you drinking? Right, Starbucks? right, and it's okay. yeah, there's Starbucks. I probably would believe you. And that's, that's usually <laughs> someone who is just cutting and pasting what they read somewhere <laughs> exactly. on their Facebook right, status. Right. You know, I always love well, when people argue and cut and paste where you're saying something and. You know, they're just cutting and pasting something from an ebook to respond, and then you're responding <laughs> back. Here's another cut and paste. Like, say it in your words, man. All right? yeah, who said you that? actually well, understand what you're talking about. Come on, right. you know, like, here, like here's a research review of 10 studies that shows coffee does not cause dehydration. Like, oh, oh you have a quote from an expert? Okay, you're, yeah, you're right. I was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, that expert is Dr. They and Dr. Them. You know, they say. And you know right. what they say. You know, I heard from them. Who, who, are, who are these? them, they, and all these other <laughs> pronouns that you're using. You know, like, who, who are these folks, man? And they can never tell you. Usually, it's usually their aunt. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, my Aunt Bessie said, okay, have you looked at your Aunt Bessie lately? Dr. Oz really? said. Uh, Dr. Oz, oh, yeah. 
That's a different show right there, man. <laughs> well, Brian, thanks page. a lot. Thanks a lot for coming on, buddy. We, won't, we don't want to take up your whole day here, but uh, where can people find more information about you? Um, I do have my own site, like com. To be completely honest, I hardly ever okay. update it these days. They can find out more about me just from visiting, you know, go to PN, go to precisionnutrition.com. You know, I write a lot of content for the site. Um, I do seminars on behalf of PN. Um, oh, cool. I'm do, doing some coaching. So I do a lot of different things for Precision Nutrition. And so to really keep up with me the best, you're better off just going to precisionnutrition.com and, and going from there. Do you have any seminars coming up? Um, I do. I'm actually going to talk to the San Antonio Spurs this weekend uh, oh, in cool. Detroit. Obviously, that's a private talk. Um, you know, just to the team. Um, and then after that, um, I'm going to be speaking out in Winnipeg at the Canadian Athletic Trainers Association. Um, possibly going to be doing a, conf- a seminar at Cressy Performance sometime in March. That's to be determined. Um, and then from there, any other public ones off the top of my head? Not any more that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, there's some private ones, but off the top of my head, that's what I got for you. We have a seminar page um, on Precision Nutrition, if I forgot any. You can okay. find them right there. Awesome. Cool. Well, we're going to start calling you BSP from now on. We're going to start spreading that rumor. Yeah, Perfect. We'll Perfect for me. I'm not going <laughs> to You get a big spike in website traffic. You know that why. would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot. Cool, man. Yeah, thanks appreciate for having it. me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah. Great thanks talking to you. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Take care. Take care. And that was BSP, otherwise known as Bryant St. Pierre. And, yeah, make sure to ask him about his relation to GSP when you hit him up about any training or fitness, nutrition questions, et cetera. And we'll definitely have him come back on. It's nice to have a guy who's kind of got a very balanced approach. Right, he's not, exactly. He's not coming from a fanatical state saying, no, this is the way it has to be. This is the way you're made to eat, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it's, it's good to have – I mean, we don't mind having people with strong opinions either, but it's, it's nice to have a middle-of-the-road guy who's just balanced and well-researched as well. Exactly. So it, it helps to have – Again, someone's like, okay, well, this is what worked for me, and this is how it's going to work for everybody. Who the hell are you? We're not the right. same. We're not even related. <laughs> it's like, so <laughs> calm down. It's like, you yeah, you, you got it exactly. You have, a guy in, uh, you have a guy in Paraguay telling someone in India how to eat, or you have someone in <laughs> you have Antarctica saying, hey. Yeah, you, know, you got an Eskimo, got Eskimo. Yeah, an Eskimo trying to tell like, some, somebody in Uganda, Eskimo like, this is how you eat. They're like, dude, there are no whales in Uganda. Calm down. <laughs> 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 just a warlord or two that's about it that's about as close to a whale as you're going to get <laughs> okay so stop it yeah and in a lot of parts of the world their their main concern is actually eating you know whatever they can get their hands on they're not worried about it's macronutrient balance and it's making sure they get their efas and so forth right. but the first goal is we actually need to get some food period today i guess it's like i said you know i, I like looking at data i like looking up blood work saliva testing all that stuff i, I think it's very useful but you, you don't want to get too attached to what you see there because I think that's yeah. when you can overly, you can become overly analytical about it, and then it's, it's you start becoming, you just start being, just consumed by these numbers all the time, mm-hmm. and you forget that hey, I'm actually feeling pretty. I was feeling pretty good before I looked at those numbers. Right, exactly. It's powerful what the mind can do. So that's another indicator. I can wait a minute. If I was strong, if I was mentally strong enough to make myself feel like crap after feeling so great just by looking at some numbers. Huh, I can actually reverse this. <laughs> so I can turn it back That's around. That's topic right there because people are so good at making themselves feel like crap, but <laughs> very, very few are good at making themselves reverse that and just turn their day around and feel great, right? You like, feel like yeah. crap. That could go on all week for some people. You have a bad workout, now that's going to ruin your whole week. Right. right. But generally when, when something good happens, like, that might be that day, and then the next day you're complaining about something else. Yeah, and it's so funny because a lot of times – I don't know what it is. I, I can't even base, like, if it's the media or what it is, but for some reason to feel happy is some, this hokey thing. Like, you shouldn't feel happy. You say, right. well, why are you so happy? Why are you smiling? Well, why are you not? <laughs> so, look, look, dude, first of all, I'm breathing. A, that's a given A. I'm already one step ahead right there. I'm breathing right now. So I don't understand why it's a problem to be happy. Right, I agree. But then the flip side of that is, with the flip side of that is, when you're just walking around and some idiot's like, "Hey man, smile." It's like, shut the fuck up, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna walk around smiling like a fucking dork. It's because I'm walking around looking like what you think is, you know, stone faced or mean looking. It doesn't mean that that's what I'm feeling on the inside. So it's like, you smile, dipshit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't worry about whether I'm smiling or not. You know? <laughs> so the moral of the story that's, is, that's like you'll be a lot happier if you mind your own business. That's the yeah. moral. 
that, that's really like an opener, right? Like, oh, here comes the pitch. Hey, man, yeah, you smoke more often. I was like, oh, great. Usually, hey, it's pick up. Usually, it's like something women hear more often, like some dude trying to pick them up. Hey, baby, you should smoke more often. It's like, yeah, well, maybe she would if she didn't have some jack off, you know, hitting <laughs> on her when she's trying to run her errands. <laughs> really happy until you showed up. Okay, like go away, man. <laughs> the girl in the gym with the headphones on. Why do you think she has those headphones on? Because she wants to work out. She doesn't want to talk to you. Yeah. Exactly. So there was a stat when I was in London. I was, I was in a grocery store, and I heard this stat, this statistic out there, where it said that. The number one reason why guys join the gym is to meet women. And the number one reason why women drop their gym membership is because of the guys hitting on them too much. You know? <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> See, that's one of, those are some stats I can get behind right there. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> those are useful stats, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, cool, man. All right, man, let's yeah. let folks know what you got coming up, man, and what they can do with that great coupon code of ours. Yeah, yeah, man, we got, uh, we got a great coupon code. You can use coupon code LLA. You can get 10% off any of my nutrition supplements, testosterone booster, my recovery oil, my Restorezon enzymatic product to help manage that inflammation. And you can also use it to get 10% off any of my Australia courses. We've got some st- stuff coming up in Sydney in May and also Brisbane. I need to, make, need to make sure I pronounce that right. Yes. I was saying Brisbane before, and no, uh, some of my Brisbane. Australian fans <laughs> correct me on that. They go, no, Bane, like, is a, Bane is a character well, from Batman. Calm yeah, down. Well, that's what he said. That was, that was the exact lie the guy said. Like, last year I taught at Melbourne. But like, no, it's not Melbourne, like the Bourne identity. It's Melbourne. I'm like, okay, Melbourne. <laughs> Listen, got it. All <laughs> well, that information is at MikeMahler.com. And how about yourself? And hop over to NewWarriorTraining.com, and you can get 30% off of my bodyweight training DVD, the physical copy, or the digital download. All you have to do is put in coupon code LLA, and you can get that with a nice little discount. What about the in-person copy? They want to have you come live to them and and take you through that routine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) 10% 10 off a first-class ticket. Exactly. (laughs) That's a totally different thing. But you know what? You could probably almost make that happen. You're probably (laughs) listening. Something may happen on this show or announce on the show around April where you can kind of make that dream come true. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have, we have a we have a really interesting course in the works in the development right now. We're looking at a September date in Las Vegas, just putting the ideas together. We already we already know who we want to work with, so that's that's well established. So just putting together the curriculum, scaling it, making sure we price it right. We know it's a down economy right now. We know a lot of people are struggling, so we we want to make the price as competitive as possible, so it's affordable. But you know, we also have to get paid as well. We can't do it for nothing. So we're gonna we're gonna work all that stuff out, and then we'll start promoting it on the show through all of our mediums and hopefully a lot of you will come out to that. It'd be great to meet a lot of our listeners in person. I think it would be a great time. And Vegas is always a great time. And we're, we're not instructors where we're not going to be accessible, meaning that we teach and it's like, bye-bye guys, have fun. No, we'd like to get together with folks afterwards, hang out at the strip. Maybe we can organize a show or something, you know, whatever, man, we'll figure out something. We'll have a good time. So it'll be an experience is where I'm going. It's not going to just be let's train during the day and everyone goes back to their hotel room to watch you know, old episodes of T.J. Hooker until the next day. You know, <laughs> runs at TJ what old-ass TV station are you watching that they're showing T.J. Hooker? That was, that was the show that I was starting to think about a show that would just pull out of my head. <laughs> that, Adrian's that the man. Come on, man. It's been a while since I've had a TV, so this is the kind of stuff that... Come on, man. Right. Heather Thomas hasn't had a job since that show. Come on. <laughs> uh, I forgot all about Heather Thomas. Oh, man. how could you? <laughs> she was on The Fall Guy, wasn't she? Wasn't it Heather? Heather Locklear that was on T.J. Hooker. No, because they're, 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 they're kind of interchangeable. Anyway. Yeah, well, they well, that's because T.J. <laughs> Hooker T.J. Hooker would come on after the Fall Guy, and Lee Majors is easily com- you know you can confuse him with William Shatner during that time. So <laughs> no, but yeah, Heather Thomas, I think she was on the Fall. No, she was no, she was on T.J. Hooker. She was on T.J. Hooker. But yeah, <laughs> to my Lee Majors, my all these. Now they'd be like, no, you guys are wrong. I'm a big T.J. Hooker fan. I have the box set at home. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, good for you, buddy. Have fun with that. <laughs> but here's a little. Here's a, Here's a little shortcut. Here's a little something that can help you out for you folks out there. You know, you know, just in case, which is a 99% chance it's going to happen, that we do this experience. I won't even say a workshop. This experience in September. It's eight months from now. Okay, it is February as of this show. So starting this month, start, just put, start a little fund, an LLA podcast fund for yourself to come out to this experience. Put, put aside 50 75 or 100 bucks for, the, for all that time. By that time, dude, you, I mean, it doesn't really cost that much to fly to Vegas. There's always special, especially during that time of the year because that's the right, slow right. season for them. Yeah. It's the start of the slow season. 
and you can get great hotels. So if you're putting back 50 to 100 bucks a month from now until September, you're, you're going to have a great experience right there. And you're pretty much yeah. covering a lot of your costs. So think about that. So yeah, oh, you can make a great side. trip out of it. Yeah, you can make a really fun trip out of it. September is a great time of year out here. The weather is perfect. Like Sincere said, it's not too crowded, so fares will be inexpensive. Most most nice hotels in the Strip are fairly reasonable during that time as well. And then you can make a you can make a nice weekend out of it. Get some training, meet some cool people. You can bring the family, go to some shows. So I mean, we'll we'll put together some stuff that we think we like. Sincere said, we want to make this an experience, not just a workshop where you just come in and we train, and that's all great, and then everyone just leaves, and then we come back the next day. Let, let's make this an experience where it's something you really remember. Exactly. And if you want to save even more money, hotwire.com, people. <laughs> It'll never let you down. You can find a, you can get a Vegas vacation for dirt cheap on hotwire.com, especially during that time of the year. So, look, I'm just trying to help the folks out. I'm trying to give you all the little tools, all the little shortcuts. I mean, I mean, if you really want to save money, you know, get the supplements, get some serious body weight video because you're going to get more fit, your hormones are going to be more optimal, so you're going to feel better, and you'll be more productive, so you'll make more money, right. and then thus you'll have more to spend. So, I mean, it's, uh -huh. we're here for you. It's all, it's all synergy. It's all synergistic, folks. <laughs> we're here for you. See, we're right there. <laughs> You and me. <laughs> All right, folks. So, yeah, big shouts out again to Brian St. Pierre for coming on the show today. Lots of great information. Thank you guys for continuing to give us those ratings and reviews and helping us. To, finally, we made it past 100 reviews now over on iTunes. Yeah, we appreciate yeah. that. Hit that 100 mark. And instead of getting those ratings and reviews on Stitcher as well. So keep downloading the show. Keep subscribing. Keep sharing. And keep the feedback coming on social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter. We're enjoying all that. As yeah, well as the email. Let's get those reviews coming because let's get to 200 now. We hit 100. Yeah. Let's get the, let's get the 200 reviews. And if you like the show, and you know some of you may be in a position where you can't afford to buy anything right now, you're strapped, and we get that. So that's why it's never a hard sell on the show. We don't pitch you every show on buying our stuff. It's only at the end. We give you great content, and we have a little pitch at the end. So one thing you can do to help us out and keep delivering great content is put that review on Stitcher, put that review on iTunes. Yeah. Thanks for supporting the show. See you folks next time. Take it easy. Later.